Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And Father, we agree wholeheartedly with our brother Jeff. Help us to be those who are redeeming the time. Making the most, Lord, of what You've given us. Using it, Lord, to the fullest. And also, Lord, being thankful and appreciative for those things that You've placed in our lives. Those blessings, starting with our family. And Lord, we thank You for the family of Calvary Chapel Vista. We thank You, Lord, for our church and what You're doing here. And Lord, we pray that You would just continue to help us be a fellowship growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Teach us now tonight from Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I I love the, the line in that song. That first song, fighting to surrender. Isn't that true? It's so often, it's just that. It's a fight to surrender in that way that we need to, to the Lord. Question for you tonight. How many of you have been in a traffic accident before? Show of hands, okay? Almost all of us. Been in a fender bender or two. I remember I was in a wreck once and it was... Purely because I was being careless. I was at a stoplight. There was a car in front of me. I was going to make a right-hand turn. I was in high school. And some girls from my school came pulling up next to me. Right as they were pulling up, the guy in front of me started to go. And they called out, hey, Rob. And so I, wanting to be cool, kind of wave. I'm waving at them. And I started to go because the guy in front of me went. But then he stopped. And I ran right into him. Stupid, careless, auto accidents. How many of you have not been in an auto accident before? Okay, we're giving out prizes tonight. Can you guys? Uh, no. <laughs> now the hands go up. It was me. I won a prize. No. You know, it's interesting. Somewhere in America, it's happening right now. On average, once every two seconds, or 1,500 times an hour, there's an accident. In all, there is likely to be nearly 13 million auto accidents in the United States this year. By one estimate, those crashes will cost the country a staggering $190 billion in repairs, medical bills, and lost wages. There's actually a little thing on the internet that State Farm has put out, in case you were wondering, of the 10 most dangerous intersections in America. I've listed them for you. The first one is in Pembroke Pines, Florida. You want to avoid this place. Flamingo Road and Pines Boulevard. It's one of the, it's the top intersection in America for accidents. We have one in California, they're number 10, Fair Oaks Boulevard and Howe Avenue up in Sacramento. Now, all of these intersections have one thing in common. They have been areas where people have had a difficulty in navigating their way through traffic. You know, life is a lot like those intersections. We can all find ourselves in traffic areas of life where it becomes difficult to navigate. 
But God has given us a map book called the Bible. And he's given us a built-in navigational device called his Holy Spirit. That if we listen to, we can make it through. If we listen to those two things, if we read the map book and listen to the built-in navigational device of the Holy Spirit, we can make our way through those difficult intersections, those dangerous intersections with flying colors. Instead of crashing and burning, we can come out unscathed and better having gone through the process. Well, tonight we see where Saul steers his life into some dangerous intersections that leave him shamed and destroyed. If you're not there yet, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Israel, we've seen, has asked God for a king. And God granted their request by giving them a king by the name of Saul, the son of Kish. We first met Saul in chapters 9 and 10, where we were told that he was handsome, that he was tall, taller than anyone else in Israel, and that he was wealthy. We also saw that Saul had some humility, that he was a bit taken back by the fact that the Lord would choose him to be for such a role to be the king there in Israel. Chapter 10 ended with Saul being anointed as king. And this phrase that stuck out to us, we made note of it. Turn back over to chapter 10. Look at verse 26. It says, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. What a glorious thing that God assembled a group of men to come alongside of Saul. And notice that they were valiant men. That word valiant means that they were strong and able men. They were men of faith. Valiant men whose hearts God had touched. Well, as we come to chapter 13, Saul has been king now for two years. And really, it's been two uneventful years. There hasn't been a lot that has happened. There hasn't been a lot that Saul has done in being king. But here we see in chapter 13 that Saul starts to make some mistakes. Mistakes that will end up costing him his kingdom. We pick it up in verse 1. Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and, and the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Now, again, I want you to note that back there in chapter 10, we see God is bringing men to Saul, valiant men, men whose hearts he's touched. And God is bringing them. He's joining them alongside of, of Saul, his king. But here in chapter 13, we see Saul is picking men for himself. And this is his first mistake. If you're taking notes, Saul's first mistake is that of presumption. He, he comes to this place where he begins to presume, hey, I'm a king. I need an army. All the kings around me, all the kings of the other nations, they, they, they have an army. I need an army. Now, this was the first regular army that Israel ever had. Previously, Israel only had a militia a group of fighters that were assembled together in times of national threat. There was no professional organized 
army up to this point. It was a time when the people would, there would be a threat that would be coming against them and God would rally the people together to go out and fight. And it would be all the people. It would be those who were skilled and those who were unskilled. And God would be their strength. God would meet them. God would work in miraculous ways. You look at one of the first battles that the children of Israel encounter. They're in the book of Exodus. I think it's right around chapter 17. Now remember, they've been slaves. For 400 years, they have not been fighters. And out there in the wilderness, suddenly an army is coming against them and God brings the people together. I think it was the Amalekites. And God brings the people together there right around Exodus chapter 17. Joshua leads the people out. These people that weren't used to fighting, they had been slaves and God gives them the victory. That's what God had been doing with the children of Israel, with the nation of Israel. But now for the first time, Israel has a professional army. Saul chose 3,000 men. He picked 2,000 to go with him and 1,000 to go with his son, Jonathan. Now, the connotation here in the text is that he picked the top of the litter. It's the idea that Saul, you know, made a choice, that he got the people together and he went through, you know, group by group and said, okay, I want you and I want you and I want you. The rest of you guys in this group, you can go home. He picked these 3,000 that he thought, you know, were of the, the, the top of the, the litter, the, the, the kind of guys that a king would want to have around him. And he sent the rest home. He assembled together these special forces. Now, this is exactly what God warned that a king would do. Remember back in chapter 8? You can turn there if you want. In verse 11, this is what God warned. This is what he told the people. If you... One a king like the other nations, this is what he will do. This will be the behavior, God said, of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots and he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties and will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. But this was this is what God warned. This is what your king will do. But this is never what God intended. This was never God's intention. In times of battle, God wanted to have all the men of Israel come together and fight. We saw an example of this in chapter 11. But Saul is making his picks here. The choice men. And he sends the quote-unquote losers, the ones that he would look at as being losers, he sends them home. But, but don't we see as we go through the Word of God, don't you see as you, when you study the Bible that, that over and over again, what do we see? God doing miraculous, radical things with losers. With losers. So we see here Paul's first mistake was that of presumption. Thinking that He needed to have an army. Taking matters into his own hands by forming this army. We pick it up in verse 3. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, or Gibeah, Geba, and the Philistines heard it. 
And then Saul, mark this, blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Here we see Saul's second mistake. The first was presumption. The second was pride. Jonathan goes out with his thousand and he conquers, he attacks this garrison of the Philistines. But we see that Saul blows the trumpet. In other words, Saul takes the credit for what Jonathan is doing. And this is going to be a constant problem in Saul's life. That Saul is overly concerned about what people think of him. And this is a form of pride. Whenever you find yourself being overly concerned about what other people are thinking about you, that's why he's blowing the trumpet. That's why he wants the credit. Whenever you find yourself being overly concerned about what other people are saying about you, that is a form of pride. And it's a major problem because you see, when you are overly concerned about what people are thinking, you are not as prone to be concerned at all about what God is thinking. What God is thinking, what his heart is. I remember Pastor Brian years ago making the statement that in order to be a good leader, you need to have thick skin. In other words, you need to not be concerned about what other people think. You need to not be concerned about how others are perceiving you, how they perceive you so that you can do what God is calling you to do. When you are worried about what others see, what others think, you start walking in what the Bible calls the fear of man instead of walking in the fear of God. And the Bible declares that the fear of man is a snare. The fear of God, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's how to keep from evil. But the fear of man, it's a snare. It will trip you up all the time. Saul in his pride here is blowing the trumpet. And it all centers around this this aspect, this problem that, that continues to be an issue in his life of wondering, what are the other people thinking? Or what are they going to think of if, if Jonathan gets the credit for this battle? So Saul in his pride takes credit for the battle. And this is a thing that we really need to guard against. When God works, when God uses you, when He works in your life, don't blow the trumpet, but give God the glory. Don't blow the trumpet. Don't say, hey, look what I did. But blow the trumpet that says, look what He did. Don't blow the trumpet that says, hey, look how great I am, but blow the trumpet that says, look how great God is. Look how awesome he is. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There were these two ducks and a frog that were all living together on a farm. 
They were buddies. They were friends. They would hang out together there around the the pond on that farm. But then there was a drought that hit that particular farm. Their pond was drying up and they knew that they were going to have to leave. But the problem was the, the frog was saying, this is easy for you. You guys can just fly away and go find some other pond to go, you know, hang out in. But, you know, I, I'll never make it. I'll never make it just hopping along. But he says, I've got a plan. I've got an idea. If you two ducks will take a stick and put it in your mouths, then I can grab onto it with my mouth and we can all fly to, to some other pond together. And the other, the two ducks, his friends, they, they said, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And so they put the sticks in their mouth and the frog jumped up there with his mouth and they took off. And as they were flying out, the, the farmer who, who had become kind of friends. He got to know these ducks and this frog there on the farm. He he looks and he and he sees and he says, clever, brilliant. And he calls out, he says, man, that, that's a brilliant idea. Who thought of it? And the frog? Pride literally preceded the fall. He opens his mouth and says, I did, as he fell to his death. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The application for us, opening your mouth and saying, I did, is a way to fall every single time. In Saul's pride, he blew the trumpet. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, it says, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Saul is well on his way here to a shameful destruction. We pick it up in verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets in rocks and holes and pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad of Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Well, the Philistines recovered from their losses with vengeance and they came with force against Israel. And the Israelites, in, as a result of this, they, they panicked. Now, Jonathan was bold enough to launch the initial attack against the Philistines, but the men of Israel were not bold enough to stand strong against their enemy. And instead, in great fear, notice it says they were distressed and they went to hide anywhere that they could. They hid in caves, in the thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits, or they fled across the Jordan River to the land of Gad in Gilead. This was a low point in the nation of Israel. As for Saul, he's still in Gilgal trying to figure out what to do as he's watching the people around him grow more and more freaked out by the day. We pick it up in verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me, 
and he offered the burnt offering. Apparently, Samuel had told Saul to wait for him in Gilgal. And that when he came, he would preside over the sacrifices so that Israel would be spiritually prepared to go into battle. But for some reason, Samuel delayed in his coming. And here we see mistake number three for Saul, that of panic. What Saul does here is he decides to take matters into his own hands by offering the sacrifices. Now, Saul was not a priest, which meant that he had no business offering sacrifices to the Lord. This was a duty that had been reserved, set aside for the Levites, set aside for those who were a part of the priestly tribe, those who were a part of the priesthood. Their job and only their job was that of offering up the sacrifices. You know, it's interesting when you consider the various kings in Israel. There were some kings like David, for instance, who was a king and a prophet. Now, some have said that that David would have gladly given up those two offices to be a priest, that that's really where his heart was at, being in that place of just being able to completely serve the Lord and that being his only responsibility to serve the Lord. There were those who were prophet and king, but there wasn't any king in Israel who was ever prophet, priest, and king, except for one. He appears in the book of Genesis by the name of Melchizedek. In the book of Hebrews, we read about Melchizedek and that he actually, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ serves today as prophet, priest, and king, but only him. Well, here Saul is trying to move into that role that that he wasn't meant to be in, that he wasn't called to be in, that of being the priest. And he didn't have the authority to do this. And so Saul was intruding into an area where God did not call him. Now, remember those of you who were with us when Saul was proclaimed king of Israel. Remember what he did? When he was anointed, when Samuel brought him out and he's kind of like going to present him to the people and, and, and here's going to be your king. Remember what he did? He went and hid. He's over hiding in the luggage. He's hiding in the stuff. And they're like, where is he? And, you know, it's like, somebody, oh, there's his feet. You know, he's over there. You know, he's hiding underneath the stuff. And they went and got him. Saul hiding from the call of God. And we pointed out the folly of trying to hide from God's call. Hiding from the rule of God, hiding from the call of God upon your life. Well, when God has called you to a task and you try to hide from it, that's folly. It's foolish. But listen, it's equally foolish to venture into a task that God has not called you to. You know, it's obvious in listening to Jeff sing tonight that God has gifted him. And in talking to him, I know that that he has a desire. He feels a calling upon his heart to be involved in in music ministry and be involved in worship and and, and that type of thing. And it's obvious that that, okay, God has gifted him from that. Now, if I grabbed his guitar and, you know, got up here and tried to 
sing tonight, you would know that I was intruding into an area that God has not called me to do, to be a part of. And it's a foolish thing when that happens. God did not call Saul into the priesthood. And for him to enter into that area was just as much folly as him trying to escape the, the call of God. And not only folly, but it was outright disobedience. And hopefully you're not here tonight. Sitting here is one hiding from the call of God. But at the same time, hopefully you're also not one who is trying to do what God hasn't called you to do. You know, sometimes people get pressured into ministry roles that God hasn't called them into. And this is one of the reasons, and I want you to listen carefully here. This is one of the reasons why here at the fellowship, when, when we need helpers for various ministry needs, that we always preface, when we make the need known, we always preface it by saying this, please pray and ask the Lord. And see if this is something that he wants you to get involved in. Ask the Lord if he wants you to be a part of this. You see, I know, I know that if you truly pray and God wants you to be a part of something, he'll make it known to you. He'll make it, he'll reveal it to you. you there'll be no doubt. You'll know in your heart. He'll confirm it in the word. Yes, I want you to get involved in that. And we don't need to try to convince somebody to get involved in something because God will make it clear. And if God doesn't call you, if he doesn't make it clear, we really don't want you to be involved in that particular thing because it'll be fruitless. You'll be intruding into an area that God hasn't called you into. But listen, if you do pray and God says, yes, I want you to get involved in that, don't hide from the call of God. Jump in, jump in and watch and see what God does. Because listen, you can never, ever be more happy and more fulfilled in your life than when you are in the center of God's will. When you are doing what God desires and has ordained in that particular season for you to be doing, there's nothing more fulfilling. There's nothing more satisfying. I've had this conversation with, with missionaries many, many times. When they started to sense that call of God upon their lives to go overseas somewhere, to take that step of faith. And at first, they would wrestle with it because, you know, it means leaving all the creature comforts of, of this life to go over and, and serve the Lord in, in some other place on a meager, you know, income. And, and, and it's difficult. And they would struggle with that. And there would be a sense of, you know, maybe for months as they were struggling, in a sense, hiding from the call of God, this, this frustration that would kind of just be over them because of just struggling with that. And I, most people do. I mean, it's a radical thing to do that, to, to, to just pack up and, and leave and answer that call of God. But you know what? I've talked to so many of them after I've known their struggle and then they take that step of faith and then they're over there and you meet up with them, you know, six months later. And they're like, man, I've never been so happy. I've never been so overjoyed. I've never been so fulfilled. I've never been so close to God. Why? Because they're in the center of God's will. 
But at the same time, I've also seen people who they went, they thought, they wanted deep in their hearts to be on the mission field, but it wasn't what God was calling them to. And they went over and you know what? Boy, you meet them over there and they're just miserable. They're miserable. Why? Because they've intruded into an area that God hasn't called them to be a part of. I've learned this in my own life the hard way. I was asked once to go speak at a youth retreat up in Washington. A friend of mine asked, and I didn't pray. I thought, you know, he's my buddy. Sure, I'll go on. I'll do it. And I'll tell you, there's a phrase that pastors sometimes have. It's, it's, it's called being alone in the pulpit. And uh, I tell you, there's nothing more discouraging than being alone in the pulpit. And what that means basically is that God isn't with you. You know, the anointing isn't there. And praise God, his word doesn't return void. But I mean, it's the worst when you find yourself, you're trying to communicate the word of God. And, and it's just like you're by yourself. You know, you realize, you know what? God is not in this place. You know, Jacob, he woke up and he said, God is in this place and I knew it not. Well, I've been in some situations where it was like, you know, God isn't here and I wish he was, you know, Lord, help, please. I'm sorry, you know, type of a thing. And uh, that's the worst being in that type of situation. So Saul here was intruding into an area that God had not called him into. We pick it up in verse 10. Now, it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. And then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to him, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, what we see here is really the, the, the next result to, to Saul's panic. And that's his fourth mistake here is that Saul ends up blaming others. Samuel shows up and he says, Saul, what have you done? What have you done? Why have you done this? And Samuel probably smelled the sacrifice. And, and, and what Saul does here is he starts to pass the blame. He's passing the blame. Now, you remember when in the garden, remember when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he told them not to eat of any or they could eat of all the trees of the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate of that tree, they would surely die. And they ate of that fruit and God came into the garden looking for them and they were hiding. And God said to Adam, why are you hiding or why were you hiding? And he asked, did you eat of the tree? What was Adam's response? Guys, what was Adam's response? It's the woman. He's passing the blame. He's making excuses. And men have been doing that ever since. And women as well. 
But we see that's what Saul is doing here. And he makes excuses in three areas. Three specific excuses are given. We see there in verse 11. The first, he says, when I saw the people were scattered from me. In other words, what Saul is saying here, here's where he panics. When I saw the people were scattering, I had to do something. I needed to do something to impress them, to to gain back their support. Listen. If you are involved in leadership, listen close. If you lead a company, if you're a leader at your work, if you lead a Bible study group, if you're a leader in a ministry, listen closely. You will have seasons as a leader where people will sing your praises. You will have times where people are with you and you can sense it. And they appreciate what you're doing. They appreciate how hard you're working. They appreciate what is happening. There are those seasons. But there are also those seasons where people will scatter. And their support will scatter. It happens all the time. In any situation where somebody is leading over a group of people, there'll be those times where they're going to sing your praises. But there's also going to be those times when the praises are going to cease. People are going to scatter. The question is, what will you do when it happens? Will you panic or will you pray? Will you take matters into your own hands trying to please the people or will you trust God? There have been times since I have been a pastor where I have started to see People scatter. It happens sometimes like this. Someone who used to sit up front, suddenly you notice they're sitting in the back. And oftentimes, not all the time, in fact, there's a, a sister in our church that used to come to first service or comes to first service and, and she used to sit up front all the time. And I saw her one Sunday you know, in the back and then two Sundays in the back and three Sundays in the back. And a lot of times the pattern is, you know, they're they're one step away from the door. You know, they go from the front row to the back door and out the door in, you know, a matter of a, a short period of time. And I asked her, I said, you know, hey, I noticed that you're sitting in the back. You know, is everything OK? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. I just, you know, want to be a little more expressive in, in worship and, and, you know, want to stand when I want to. And I didn't want to do that up front. And I, and I, I was blessed by that. You know, she was saying, look, I don't want to draw any attention to myself, but I want to be a little more free in, in worship. So I'm going to sit in the back, you know, in order to do that. But sometimes, not all the time, somebody moves from the front to the back sometimes it's because the music's too loud but but uh you know oftentimes that can be that pattern and i'll notice that some of you don't realize i notice where you sit <laughs> i notice when you're not here you know it's this vantage point and sometimes i'll notice that 
I'll notice somebody's, you know, kind of moved. You know, they went to the front, to, to the back, and I'll, I'll just kind of start to notice that there's something happening in their, their hearts. Maybe it isn't they move from the front to the back, but just in interacting, just seeing them, you, you just see that they're not connecting anymore. And you know, I believe that there are seasons in the life of a church. And what I mean by that is I think that there are times when God will lead people into a various ministry, into a, a, a church, sometimes for a season. Some people, he leads them in to be a part of that church family forever. And I know that many of you that, you know, you've been here a very long time and, and you know, God is, you're, you're a part of the stonework here. But sometimes I think God will lead people into a fellowship for a season. And it's during that season that he wants to use that particular fellowship to do something in their life, in their heart. And also he wants to do something in that fellowship through them, through their life, some impact that their presence being a part of that church family is going to have. But sometimes that season can be a week. Sometimes it can be a couple months. Sometimes it can be 10 years. But something will start to happen there in their hearts where they're just not connecting anymore. Now, when I would notice somebody going through that type of thing and they weren't connecting, here's what I used to do. I would meet with them and I would try to talk them into and give them reasons why they needed to stay and be a part of the fellowship that I was pastoring, be it this one or the one in Oregon or the high school ministry. And many, many times I was successful in talking them into staying. But you know what? It always backfired. Because you see, whatever was going on in their hearts that was causing them to become disconnected, it would eventually cause them to get even more frustrated. Because whatever was going on didn't change. And so there was this frustration that would start to get very, very ugly and their disgruntledness would then begin to infect others. All the while, God was wanting to take them somewhere else. All the while, God was wanting to, to place them somewhere else. So you know what I do now? When I sense that, when I see that, I'll ask them. When I meet somebody and I'm talking to them and they're like, you know, I just, it just isn't happening for me here anymore. I'll ask them. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What's on your heart? What's there that, that you're just, you know, sensing and feeling that, that, you know, is maybe missing here that, that you, you know, are desiring? And I'll try to help them find it. You see, I want them to go somewhere where they're going to be fed the word of God. And so I'll make recommendations. Maybe it's, they, they want, you know, just more of a, a time of worship in the service. Hey, this place over here, they do that. And they also, they're going to feed you the word of God. So maybe go check that out. And what's great about that is, is that, you know, I'm trying to help them. They leave blessed. We leave friends. And, and it's just this, it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing. In realizing that, that God is, is moving them. Now, let me say this though, that if there's an issue that they're running from, a problem that they're trying to avoid, they've had a falling out with someone and they're trying to, to get away from a difficult situation, that's another story. 
That's Matthew 18, where, where the, the, the Lord lays out very clearly, if you have ought with your brother, go fix it. Go deal with it. Go talk to that person. Matthew 5.23 says, man, if you come to the altar to worship and you realize that, that, you know, there's something there in your heart that, that, or someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice and go make it right before you continue on. That's biblical of how we're to do, deal with those type of things. But when it's simply an issue of taste or style where someone, you know, is struggling in that type of way, I've maybe four or five times in the 20 years I've been in ministry, I've sat down with people in that type of a situation and said, you know, here, man, let let me help you. Let's find a place that's going to work for you. Listen, no matter what you are involved in, in any type of position of leadership, there will be times of gathering and there will be times of scattering. But what you do in those times of scattering is key to your sanity and your longevity and to, I think, the Lord being glorified. When Saul saw that the people were scattering, he panicked instead of praying. And as a result of that, he comes and and Samuel confronts him on this. Why did you do it? He offers the sacrifice. He's trying to impress the people and he makes the excuse. He starts to pass blame. It was the people's problem. They started to scatter. It's them. It's not me. That's what he's doing here. Excuse number two. Saul says to Samuel, well, you didn't come when you were supposed to. You didn't come at the days that that were appointed. In other words, Samuel, this is your fault because you were not on time. Samuel, you delayed and you forced me to take matters into my own hands. Listen, we can be tempted to do the same thing when God delays. When God delays, we can be prone to take matters into our own hands. And any time that you do that, listen, it's trouble. It's trouble. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've been there. You've walked down that road. Every time I've ever done this, Failed to wait upon the Lord. Took matters into my own hands. I regretted it deeply. I remember when I was pastoring up in Oregon. I used to go to Willamette University and I would go into their little student lounge there. It was a beautiful little setting alongside of this river. And I would spend a lot of uh, hours studying there. And I remember in this little student lounge place, there was this vending machine. And this little tiny gal, smaller than my wife, who was playing the guitar up here, she walks in, walks up to this vending machine, puts in her money, pushes the button. It was one of those ones that has the little spindly thing to push out your candy bar or whatever it was. And it goes, and then it stopped. And it left like her candy bar hanging, you know, right there. And this little tiny girl, she goes, oh, man. And she grabs the side of this vending machine. And she starts to shake it, you know. And I'm thinking, man, I don't want to mess with her, you know. But, you know, as I, as I thought about that again today, I thought, you know, that's so often 
can be what we do. We, when God doesn't answer, we, we seek to take matters into our own hands and shake things up. Hey, God's not working, so I'm going to make this happen. But we need to remember that God's delays are not denials, but God's timing is perfect. And we need to be patient because he is wanting to work something into our lives by that delay. Saul tries to blame his actions on Samuel for delaying his coming instead of realizing, hey, this was part of God's plan. God was still in control. Excuse number three, he says there in verse 11, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. In other words, we really needed God's help against the Philistines and we needed it now. So I had to do it. I had no other choice. I didn't have any other options. I couldn't wait any longer. And even though Saul felt compelled by his emotions, he was not to be ruled by his feelings. Listen, our feelings should never supersede the known will of God. Mark that. God had laid out in his word. The priests were the ones who offered sacrifice. Saul gets all worked up. He panics. He starts to get worried. The people are scattering. The Philistines are coming. And his feelings are all welled up. And he thinks, I need to offer a sacrifice. Listen, our feelings, what we are feeling, should never, ever supersede the will of God the known will of God, what God has revealed in His Word. Two of the times when you are the most prone to do this, to act in a way that goes against the Word of God, to go against the known will of God, two times when you are most prone to do this is when you feel desperate or when you feel depressed. These are two times when people are prone to get into the flesh, taking matters into their own hands, or to give into the flesh. Compromising is when they are desperate or when they're depressed. I can think back on so many times in my own life when I've taken matters into my own hands or I've just given into a temptation. It's been during these times desperate. I just don't know what to do. I know I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to shake it up. Tired of waiting on the Lord or depressed, bummed out and coming to a place of just, you know, why not? Why not? What's it going to hurt? Giving into the flesh. But this is a time when we're desperate, when we're depressed, it's a time when, when if there was ever a time that we needed to press into the Lord, it's during those times. We'll read later in 1 Samuel chapter 30 of a time in David's life when he was both desperate and depressed. It happened after he and his men had been had returned from a battle to the town that they were living in and they found that it had been ransacked their homes had been burned and their families had been taken away captive. 
At this particular time, something radical happens in the army of, of, of David. The men who were with him, as they turn on him, they're about ready to do him in because all of their, their wife, their, their kids, they're, they're gone. But we read there, David did something in this moment of being radically just desperate and also depressed. It says there that he strengthened himself in the Lord. David went to God. He strengthens himself in the Lord. And the result is he's able to pull everyone together to turn their perspective towards the Lord and to march off into battle. And God gave them victory. Listen, Saul could have made supplication to the Lord. He could have cried out to the Lord. He could have made supplication in a number of ways. He could have humbled himself before the whole nation here. And and God would have heard him. But instead, he did the one thing that he couldn't do. The one thing that he shouldn't do. And that was to offer sacrifice. Now, in that story of David, it's interesting to me because years earlier, at another time when David found himself in a place of being desperate and depressed. It happened when after he had been anointed king. And as we'll read in a f- several chapters in the coming weeks, Saul becomes increasingly jealous of David. He knows he sees this is the guy whose God's hand is on. And Saul is just out. He's ready. He's just he wants to get him. He wants to kill him. David becomes a fugitive. He spends at least the next 10 years of his life living out in the fields, living out in caves. And there comes this point where he's like at the lowest of low. He's desperate. He's depressed. He doesn't know what's going on. He's away from family. He's away from his wife. He's away from his friends. He's got this ragtag, you know, band of renegades that have been gathered together to him who were in debt and discontent and just a a, a rough group of guys. And he's at this place where David's starting to doubt. Am I really supposed to be king? Was this anointing thing that happened with Samuel, was it really real? Is this really God's will for my life? Maybe you've been in that place where you started to doubt God's call for you or doubt what he was doing or maybe doubted the the marriage that you were in. Well, we read concerning David at that particular time, 1 Samuel chapter 23, Jonathan who we're going to read more about in the next couple of weeks here. Jonathan, an awesome, radical guy, the truest picture in the Bible of a friend. Jonathan, it says, comes to David. And here's the wording. It says that Jonathan strengthened David's hands in God. It's almost the same wording in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Jonathan strengthened David's hands in the Lord. And I think that what David does in 1 Samuel chapter 30 is directly related to what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 23, that David learned from his friend Jonathan how to seek the Lord in those type of situations, how to stand upon the promise of the Lord in desperate times and in depressing times. To seek God. To go to the Lord. Saul, at the very least, should have waited for Samuel. Although he could have sought the Lord, he could have cried out to the Lord. Instead, listen, Saul. Saul went for formality. I'll offer a sacrifice instead of intimacy. 
He went for formality. He did the very thing that he wasn't allowed to do and really the very thing that God wasn't interested in. God told the nation of Israel, I I don't want your sacrifices. That's not what I'm looking for. But I want your obedience. I want your heart. God had said to Saul, if you obey me and follow me, I will establish you and your family forever. I will bless the nation of Israel because of you. But if you disobey me and don't follow me, your kingdom will come to an end. And Israel will suffer. And that's exactly what the consequences end up being. As Samuel declares there in verse 14, look at it again. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God says, this is what I'm looking for, Saul, a man who is after my own heart. What does that mean? Are you someone who is after God's own heart? What does that mean? Well, it means several things, but one that we'll touch on right now tonight is this. It means that you find in your heart where you are asking, God, what's your heart? Lord, I want to be after your heart. What's your heart? What's your heart on this? And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to walk in. That's what Saul wasn't doing. Verse 15, let's wrap it up. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Orpha, to the land of Sheol, and another company turned to the road of Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboin toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares and the mattocks and the forks and the axes to set the points of the goad. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. And they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. We noted back in the book of Judges that the Philistines had made a law that they alone could produce and repair iron. And because of that, they took away the the swords, the weapons from the people of Israel. And the people of Israel would go down and they would pay the Philistines to sharpen their uh, farming equipment. Now, in this, we see, I think, something that is a symbol of what our adversary is always trying to do to the people of God. And that's this, that he tries to take away your sword. We're told in Ephesians chapter six that our sword is the word of God. And, and the enemy tries to take away our sword. He tries to take away our sword in many different ways. He tries to take away our devotional time by causing us to become distracted. He tries to take away our commitment to Bible study. To come out on a Wednesday night like you're here tonight and and saying, you know, you're too busy to do that. He tries to take away 
our desire to read the word of God. And oftentimes he'll do that by by seeking to lure us into sin. For when we have sinned, we find it difficult to get into the word of God because there's that sense of conviction there in our hearts or we feel he tries to make us feel unworthy to come before the Lord. And he tries these different ways to do exactly what the Philistines were doing, to take away their swords. And he tries to take away our sword. There's a quote. I've heard Pastor Chuck say often is that this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. And it's true. Man, we follow this book. It'll keep us from sin. But if there's sin in our lives, it'll keep us from this book. But the person who gives himself to this book, oh, his life is blessed by it. It's been said that a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. I think there's truth in that. Now, I saw someone recently driving off with the Bible on the roof of their car. I don't think that's what they meant by that, you know, dragging your Bible behind your car. No, no, no. It's you getting into it. You know that, though. But Satan, if he can keep you from the word, then he can disarm you. And then you're one step away from being defeated. But listen, listen close. Check yourself tonight. If you are becoming disinterested in the word of God, it's indicative. It's indicative. It's it's an indication that the enemy is gaining a foothold in your life. If you find yourself that desire for God's word, if it's shrinking, it can be an indication that the enemy has gotten in. He's either being been successful in getting you distracted or he's been successful in getting you to compromise. If you sense in that heart, becoming disinterested from the word of God, don't let Satan disarm you. Instead, buckle up. We're told in James chapter four, we'll close with this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The key to that verse is in the beginning. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's where it starts. Being a man or woman of the word. Seeking his face. We learn from this particular chapter that presumption is never right when it leads us to take matters into our own hands and not trust God. We learn, number two, when pride leads us to toot our own horn instead of giving glory to God. It always leads to destruction. We learn number three, that when faced with desperate situations, don't panic and do what you think is best, but pray and wait on the Lord for his best. And we learn number four, when you blow it, don't pass the blame. Don't make excuses, but confess and repent so that God can forgive and restore. Saul's life would have played out way differently than we'll see it playing out if at this particular point, instead of making excuses, he says, you're right, I was wrong. Lord, forgive me. But he doesn't do that. He passes the blame. I pray that you and I would not be a people led around by our emotions, our feelings, 
but that we would be a people who would learn how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and strengthen each other in the Lord. That in those desperate, depressing times, instead of panicking, we would seek the Lord, that he might show himself strong on behalf of us. I was thinking about this this past week in my devotional time. There in the book of Job, you guys know the story. Job, Satan comes, the, the angels of God are coming before the Lord and Satan comes with them. God asks, hey, where have you been? And he says, you know, I've been going to and fro throughout all the earth. And God says, really? Well, have you considered my servant Job? Interesting, Satan, the thing we forget about him is he's not omnipresent like God is. He can only be at one place at one time. So he's going to and fro. In, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says Satan walks. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, going to and fro, walking about looking for those he can take advantage of in desperate, depressed situations who he can disarm. That's what Satan does. Satan is going to and fro, walking about, looking for those that he can devour. But then we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, that the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, because he is omnipresent, he can be everywhere at one time. So it's just his eyes. He's not walking about, but his eyes. The eyes of the Lord also go to and fro throughout all the earth, seeking those that he might show himself strong on behalf of, whose hearts are loyal towards him. Satan walks about to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. The eyes of the Lord go out tonight looking for those that he can empower. That's the difference. Let's be those who gives the Lord that opportunity to empower us when we find ourselves in those difficult, desperate times that we seek him, that we remain loyal to him, that he might be faithful and show himself faithful on our behalf, strong on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, as we see so clearly here tonight, these sins, these mistakes in Saul's life, his presumption to take matters into his own hands, his pride, caring about what others think, his panic and his passing of blame. Lord, may that not be the case with us. Help us, Lord, to be a people that seeks you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen.